T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Well, welcome to the show. John Roseman here, and the show is called Because I Said So, brought to you by Creative Genius Productions and American Family Radio. My thanks to both of them. Um, one of my uh, repetitive, if you will, themes on this program, and uh, you heard a hint of it in the program intro, is that I am a psychologist. I'm licensed by the North Carolina Psychology Board. The term psychologist is a legislated term, meaning that one cannot use it legally unless it has been conferred upon the one in question by a duly recognized state licensing board, which is the case with me. Um, I do believe that, uh, and I have reason to believe, and I, uh, in fact, am very confident when I say that uh, my licensing board regrets the day they ever gave me a license because I go around the country and I tell people what I absolutely know to be the truth and what can be supported statistically, and that is that psychology has caused more problems for the American family than psychologists even know how to solve, and I know that. Because I'm a psychologist. I, I can uh, tell you that with a great degree of confidence because I have seen the profession from the inside since 1979 when my license was granted to me. Um, you know, I, I really didn't realize this uh, initially because uh, I, the, the Lord had not, and he still hasn't, but he certainly had not uh, finished leading me in the direction that he wanted to lead me by 1979. But it wasn't long thereafter that I began to realize that the 1960s, the decade during which I came of age, I was 13 when the 1960s began, I was 23, married with one child and another on the way, when the 1960s ended. And I was beginning to realize that the 1960s had been an extremely destructive decade in America, for America, we entered the 1960s one America. We exited the 1960s a completely different America. We became, during the 1960s, a postmodern progressive nation. Because of postmodernity, we began to embrace relativism. 
the insidious idea that there are no standards of right and wrong, and now we have no standards, uh, according to the secular world anyway, no standards concerning gender. You can be any gender you want to be. It doesn't matter whether God has assigned you to the gender male. You can be female if you want to be. Um, And the other aspect of the 1960s was progressivism, the idea that new ideas are better than old ideas. Prior to the 1960s, pretty much, ah, I I would say most people in America would have agreed that uh, there was nothing new under the sun. And after the 1960s, people embraced the idea that new ideas are better than old ideas. Everything bad about parenting in America today had its beginnings in the 1960s. Uh, Before the 1960s, people, when they needed advice concerning the rearing of a child, they went to an elder in their extended family, generally speaking. Uh, They went to their child's grandmother, grandfather. They went to a great aunt. Uh, They went to an older sibling who had raised uh, or was raising older children and had more experience and wisdom. Uh, in, in the parenting realm, if a person uh, of that sort was not immediately available in one's extended family, then one sought out an elder in one's church or neighborhood. And I call these elders, I, I just give them the generic label grandma. Uh, the parents sat down with grandma in her living room or her kitchen over two cups of coffee, two glasses of iced tea, and uh, began talking to grandma. And grandma gave advice that was based on a life she had led, not books she had read. And she didn't charge for this advice. She wasn't watching a clock. And when she talked, she was not talking in theoretical terms. She Uh, When she gave advice, she came straight to the point. And one of the things that Grandma accomplished that I'm absolutely convinced that psychologists and other mental health professionals rarely accomplish is Grandma was able to convince this young, maybe slightly confused parent who'd been knocked off balance by a problem her child had thrown at her that she was capable Being a responsible adult, she was capable of dealing with whatever the problem was successfully. And um, one of the things that happened during the 1960s is we began to turn to professionals for advice concerning the rearing of children. Benjamin Spock really didn't have anything to do with what I call the psychological parenting revolution that took place in the late 60s and early 1970s. It was actually kicked off by the publication of a book by a Manhattan psychologist named Chaim Gannat. And the title of the book was Between Parent and Child. And Gannat's radical proposition was that a child's emotional expressions were in some odd way, a valid, reliable indicator of the quality of the parenting that the child was receiving and that one of the requirements of good parenting was to properly uh, understand, interpret, 
and respond to your child's emotional expressions. And therefore, today, as a consequence of this, uh, people began to believe, and the mental health community began to promote the belief that children had a right to freely express emotion. Now, this has become a cancer in American parenting. Uh, It was unheard of in the 1950s, for example, for a child five years old to be seen throwing a tantrum in a public place. Today, this sort of behavior on the part of five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-old, eight-year-old children screaming their displeasure at something in public places is ubiquitous. And this is where it had its start. It had its start in the 1960s, and it had its start because of insidious, destructive, professional propaganda. Uh, The show is Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Rosemond. If you want to email us, you can do so at radio at rosemond, R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D dot com. If you want to call us, and we welcome your calls, the number is 404-419-6499, 404-419-6499. Back in a minute with more on the subject of parenting. Why? Because I said so. back to the show. This is your host, John Rosemond. The show is called Because I Said So. If you want to join us, our phone number is 404-419-6499. If you'd rather send us an email, it's radio at rosemond, R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D dot com. For more information about me, my books, my speaking schedule, and so on and so forth, you can go to johnrosemond.com. We do have a caller waiting on the line. Her name is Patricia, and she is from San Diego, California. Patricia, how can I help you? I've been listening to your uh, show on American Family Radio, and I heard a long interview with you by one of the uh, someone before your show started on American Family Radio, and I heard about your book, Parenting by the Book, and I just thought, wow, I waited all my life to hear from this man and this book to come out, and immediately thought, well, I want to send this to all my grown children to help them with my grandchildren. I was just smitten by it. Well, that's the nice of you to say. Thank you. Patricia, I, well, I really just, appreciate those those sentiments. It's, it was more than sentiments. I could tell that there was something really going on in the way of a mission that God had given you out there that's so needful. Um, I'd been racing horses for probably about 40 years for rodeo competition, and I recently had met a family in my neighborhood who just moved in that had a young girl, 16. She was a sophomore in high school. And um, the family and I had talked about the possibility of her 
working with me and helping with the horses. And at first, it just seemed like an answer to something I'd prayed for for many years because my children were grown up and gone, and I didn't have riders for the horses. And um, so, but after a while, um, I saw some things about this young girl's personality that were pretty shocking, but I, of course I was already becoming attached to her. And um, I began to wonder if um, this was an opportunity to witness to her family and to her, or if I was just getting in way over my head and God had allowed me to see all these things about this young girl early on. Um, I've had an opportunity over the last 40 years to really bring some of God's grace into people's lives and become connected because of raising horses in just amazing, amazing ways. So you just you just don't know. And so I thought I would call up and, and talk to you. And, of course, I had a question about could I talk, dare to talk to her parents? Be, be more specific. Tell me exactly what it is. What, what what were these behaviors? Because in the first place, it sounds like you, you've you got experience witnessing to people. You've got some experience in this area. You're just insecure about whether in this particular situation you should be saying anything to this young girl's parents. So give me give me some specifics. What is it that has caused you such concern? Well, um, when the fir- when I first was around her, she just uh, said she would just do anything. She would she would give her life to work with these horses, and she um, just seemed so eager. And she showed me videos of herself rodeoing, and she already is is a champion. But um, then when I was alone with her with the animals, I saw that she was very rough with them. She wouldn't listen to me. She had a very forward personality. She almost changed personalities completely. And um, she wanted to work free for the right to ride them and compete in rodeos. And I didn't want to make a commitment because of some of the things I was seeing. She picked up a young man after school and then picked me up. And when I said, let's stop by and show him your mother's new ranch, she said, oh, well, he's not allowed. So she was sneaking behind her mother's back with this young man. And while he was in the back seat of the car, she ran a red light on purpose to uh, show off for him. All right. Let me stop you right here, Patricia. Let let me get some more information um, in in order to help uh, provide you with some hopefully helpful guidance um, is this a Christian family? No. Okay. Well, no. well, well, that certainly mitigates against you being able to approach these parents um, on a, uh, I'll call it a level playing field. Uh, right. You don't have with them a shared worldview. Um, no, absolutely it is, not. Right. And it is unlikely under these circumstances, and I, I, you know, I'm responding to this based largely on my experience in this area. It is unlikely if you approach them and your intent 
is to be helpful, uh, and you approach them with a Christian heart, um, it is unlikely under the circumstances that, well, let me put it this way, there is strong likelihood that they will not see what you are doing as helpful. There is strong likelihood that they will respond defensively. Let's face it. This girl has some upbringing issues. Yes. Okay. And if you tell her parents, in effect, without using these terms, of course, of this term, your daughter's got some upbringing issues, there is strong likelihood, because these are not Christian parents, they do not share your worldview, they will not perceive this as helpful uh, that they are going to respond defensively, angrily. And if you are ready to accept that and you are ready to, to absorb the consequences of that, whatever they may be, uh, primarily their anger, their potential anger at you for uh, whatever they perceive this to be, criticizing their parenting, uh, criticizing their darling daughter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then go ahead, but don't jump into this without a clear understanding of what feathers you are very likely to ruffle here. Yeah. Well, I just didn't want to miss an opportunity to witness them and pray for them. Uh, I came out of a, a background like that. Um, I, I, I know that that Christ can do wondrous things, uh, but I don't want to point myself to adopt this young girl um, and uh, put myself in a situation where I'm in over my head. I have been praying for a young girl whose mother would be eager for her to rodeo, and this young girl's brother is a champion. He's out on the road now doing it. He's a few years older than her. I see her as an at-risk child because she almost manifests two completely different personalities. From what you're describing, she's got some under-socialized, psychologists would call it, tendencies. She's got some antisocial tendencies. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the real red flag here is that even in your presence— she has been uh, less than caring in her approach and behavior toward the horses. And you, you can imagine, you can extrapolate from that, and I think legitimately conclude that there is a high possibility that if you were not uh, there providing guidance to her when she was with the horses— that she yeah. might be downright abusive. And she was. She was very abusive. And her her mother said she didn't know anything about... All she knew was how to get up on a champion and ride fast and okay. win. So she was abusive even with you there. And, and that, yeah. that seals the deal, so to speak. Yeah. This is a child who's got serious, at the age of 16, antisocial tendencies. Cruelty to animals is a huge, if not the biggest, red flag there is concerning narcissistic personality disorder, and is what psychologists call it. And and, I have been studying studying narcissistic personality 
disorder uh-huh. um, and recently for other reasons. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that and the word red flag, because um, you just, like I say, there was no compassion for the animals at all. There are objects that she's going to get up on and look good and win more trophies, and she does have a lot of trophies. Right. It's all about her. It's all about it's her all about performance. Her. Yeah. And if the if the animals do not, if the horses do not completely cooperate with her, then right. she is justified because the, this is the this is the premise of the narcissist. What I want, I deserve to have. And because I deserve it, the ends justify the means. These are very, very dangerous people. In effect, and I've said this before on the show, these people have never outgrown toddlerhood. That is a toddler personality trait. Every parent who has been around a toddler uh, has seen this express itself in various ways. The toddler narcissistic personality disorder, what I want, I deserve to have, and because I deserve it, the ends justify the means. What we're seeing in America today, Patricia, and this girl is a prime example, is many, many children who have never been disciplined properly and therefore have never fully outgrown the personality disorder that is inherent to toddlerhood. Toddlers are dangerous little people. This is why God in his mercy and grace has distinguished us from the animals in one very significant way. And that is, he keeps human beings and only human beings small for a long period of time. He does not, as he does with the animals, allow us to grow to full size in one or two years. Patricia, my advice to you would be, do not approach these parents. You do not share the same worldview. There is strong likelihood they're not going to appreciate what you do. I would sever my relationship with this girl and her family as quickly as possible. I think that's going to be in your best interest as well. (laughs) This is John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So. 404-419-6499 or radio at roseman.com if you'd like to join us with a question or a comment. Be back in a minute. American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now once again, here's your host, John Rosemond. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. We've reached that point in the program where I do our much-anticipated You've Got to Be Kidding Me segment. And today's You've Got to Be Kidding Me involves a school district in Ohio. Ohio, great place, by the way. Love Ohio. Uh, It's irrelevant where this actually took place because this is the kind of thing uh, that is happening all over America in America's public schools. You rarely hear of this sort of thing happening in a private school, Christian school environment, It's not that the incident in question 
does not happen in those environments. It's just that when incidents of the sort in question happen in private school, independent school, Christian school, parochial school environments, people seem better capable of keeping their heads about the whole thing. Anyway, in this uh, school system in Ohio, a second grader was expelled from school for the rest of the year. The incident in question took place in May, granted, early May, so there was only a month left. But think of, think of you know, being in the second grade and being expelled from school. And you're an otherwise good kid, okay? Think of the impact that is going to have on this child's self-concept for quite some time to come. She was expelled from school for the rest of the year for bringing a toy cap gun onto a school bus. The child was given the option of returning to school sooner in other words, only being expelled maybe a week or so, if the family agreed to have her evaluated by a psychologist or a psychiatrist at their cost and then provide the professional's report to the school district. The girl's parents refused, saying school officials had overreacted. Oh, good for you, Mom. Just good for you. I wish I could identify you by name on the air. All I can say is, and I hope you're listening or hear this program someday, good for you. She's only seven years old, the mother was quoted as saying. To my daughter, it was only a toy. She didn't wave it around. She didn't point it at anyone. She didn't make any threats. Indeed, that seems to be the case. Everybody agrees on that. According to published reports, which the school system has not denied, the girl showed the cap gun to another student. Other children saw it and began screaming, yelling, and hiding under their seats. Now, this is the kind of reaction that today's children have been trained in by hyper-paranoid adults. The bus driver stopped the bus and confiscated the gun. A uh, person who reads my column sent me the story noting that if she, the reader, had brought her cap pistol to school, I mean, you know, everybody my age, girl and boy, we all had cap pistols. The boys had Hopalong Cassidy uh, or Lone Ranger cap pistols, uh, sometimes uh, Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, and the girls had um, Dale Evans cap pistols. Uh, that was Roy Rogers' wife, by the way. Uh, if she the reader who sent me the story, had brought her cap pistol to school, it would simply have been taken away just as any other distracting toy would have been. Agreed. The only person who seems to have kept her wits about her in this situation is the child's parents, the child's mother, whose stonewalled efforts to mark her child with some bogus psychological disorder, again, mom in Ohio of seven-year-old girl who is in no danger of becoming a future mass murderer. Good for you. And now we've got a caller on the line. His name is Michael, and Michael, ironically, is from Ohio. Michael, welcome to the show. Uh, 
what can I do for you? Well, I uh, got a comment. I listened to your program the other evening, and there was an individual on there that had like a 15-year-old boy, if memory serves me right, that was very uh, excelling in school. He did very well in school. He did not come from a broken home. Uh, everybody loved him, and he had a magnetic personality. But when he got home, it's just like, you know, the total opposite. You know, I mean, verbal abuse, I wouldn't do anything, and so forth. And so, so I'm calling in with a comment. You know, uh, they didn't really know uh, what to do. Um, apparently, they said, well, we'll put things on the refrigerator, and, and you know, if, if uh, you get, like, five marks, then you don't go to band camp. Uh, my comment is, you know, we have a culture change. It's not bad parenting. Uh, before World War II... Seventy percent of the people lived in the rural areas. Okay, after the war, seventy percent of the people became urban dwellers. And one aspect of that, Michael, is pardon my interruption, but one very significant aspect of that is that because seventy percent of the American population prior to World War II, and I'm familiar with the statistic, lived in rural areas, every family with rare exception, lived in the same area in which the parents had grown up, and so the grandparents were lived within proximity, the aunts and uncles, the entire extended family was there. And after World War II, the urbanization of America in part meant, and this is very significant to an understanding of, uh, of how parenting has changed in that time, the urbanization of the American family in part meant that those extended family supports and accountability were no longer present in as many cases. And I think that's sort of where you were going. Am I correct? Well, yeah, you're correct uh, to a point. Uh, basically, uh, when they were um, on the farm, they, they matured at a much earlier age. Agreed. Uh, they accepted responsibilities. Uh, and and they've grown up today when in the urban areas. Um, well, like for example, okay, if you take a Waltons, what would happen if John Boy wouldn't have split the wood? Well, they wouldn't have been warm in the winter. What would happen if they didn't milk the cow? The cow would dry up, and they wouldn't have any milk. So everybody had a responsibility that was instilled within them with their parents, and like you said, the grandparents and 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 uncles and so forth. Um, and, and it really worked. They, they taught these people real world values, something that they can carry with them the rest of their life. Children had responsibilities. Children had clear roles. Roles are defined in terms of responsibilities. Children were consumers, which all children are in their families, but children were also contributors within their families. They learned at a very early age that nothing is free. And uh, today's children are on a never-ending entitlement program. Well, I agree, because cause, cause I had uh, uh, asked a few uh, teenage kids, I said, what do you actually contribute to your home with your mom and dad? Oh, well, they're just there. That's all they are. They're there. I, I make my bed and I take out the trash. Maybe. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that's it? But anyways, what I'm saying is, they are today maturing physically at a much younger age, but then they're developing emotionally and becoming an adult 
later. And this is where you have the boomerang generations of people. They're, they're, they're trying to find their own rite of passage. Uh, in the Jewish community, uh, by the time they're 13, they teach the children all life skills up until the age of 13. At that point, they have a ceremony to celebrate them graduating from a child to an adult with adult consequences. Right. So they know at that point that they are a full-fledged adult. They can't, they can't be in this, what, do we, what has been determined as adolescence, this, this crazy period of time. Right. Well, I've talked to a lot of Jewish parents about this very issue, Michael, and they're really not. They, it, it may have been the case uh, 1,000, 2,000 years ago. Today, they are not actually considered fully-fledged adults at the age of 13, having passed through the ritual of the bar, bat mitzvah. They are considered apprentice adults. But the important thing is that there is a coming-of-age ritual. There is a celebration of the fact that the child in Jewish culture has been successfully discipled by the age of 13. One of the things I say is, all the time around the country, you never hear of a Jewish kid street gang. You never hear of Jewish kids running in packs as delinquents. And I believe that this is significantly related to the fact that Jewish culture in America is the only culture in America that has held on to this coming-of-age ritual. You're absolutely correct. Now, now there is another group of people, and we have a lot of them here in Ohio and Indiana and Pennsylvania. Oh, the Amish. I forgot. Yes. The Amish. Yeah. And because at the age of 16... They enter a period called uh, Rumspringer. Basically, that translates into the time to run around. Right. Okay. But at that point, on Saturday afternoons and Sunday, Sunday afternoons and evenings, they're allowed to go out into the world and socialize. And they, they've got two years or until they're married. But basically, the Rumspringer uh, is basically an opportunity for them to socialize, and to possibly find a mate. At that point, they, you know, they have to make a decision whether to stay, stay with the church or if they're going to depart from the church. But regardless, they are considered an adult at that right. point. Right, and let me interrupt you at this point. I, I don't know the actual statistic. Maybe living in, in an Amish area, you do. But it is true, is it not, that most, the overwhelming majority of Amish children after this rumspringer period in their lives, they do come back to the Amish community. The, the stats on that is 9 out of 10. Yes, 90% of those kids. And this is a testament in both Jewish culture and Amish culture of the success that is still possible concerning the discipling of the child at a relatively early age. Something that, you know, one of the comments I make, I hear the same problems from parents in an evangelical church as I hear in a secular public school in the Northeast. Michael, thanks a lot for your call. This is John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So, and we'll be back in a minute.
Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, John Roseman. The program is called Because I Said So. It is a provocative and often fascinating commentary on the raising of children, which people today call parenting, a word I really don't like. In uh, 2009, I published through Howard Books a book titled Parenting by the Book. I had brought Jesus Christ into my life nine years before in the year 2000 as a result of reading Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ several times and had felt called after Christ came into my life to write a book that would explicate biblical teachings concerning the rearing of children because it became strikingly apparent to me after I brought Christ into my life that American parents, even in the Christian community, were by and large not adhering to biblical principle in the raising of kids. And that the reason so many American parents were experiencing such difficulty, such stress, such anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, in the raising of kids was because we were depending on man's understandings concerning child rearing and had been since the mid-1960s instead of trusting in the Lord with all of our hearts, Proverbs 3, 5, or a paraphrase thereof. Um, a lot of people, that that is a book that uh, lays out a principles-based approach to parenting. A lot of people, after I wrote the book, uh, came up to me in public situations where I was doing talks and said that they would really have appreciated more uh, specific methods-based advice when it comes to discipline. So, with some reluctance, because here's the way I feel about this, uh, I can teach you a disciplinary method but it's not going to work, or at best, it will only work for a short period of time if you do not build this method or use this method, if you do not already have in place a solid principles-based parenting foundation. So it is having that foundation of biblical principle that causes just about any approach to discipline that you take to work. So I, uh, I wrote the book, the follow-up to Parenting by the Book. It's called The Well-Behaved Child, Discipline That Really Works. I spend the first half of the book asking people, begging people, pleading with people not to read the second half where all the methods are laid out. But um, the Bible, what does the Bible say about discipline? Well, the, God says a number of things concerning discipline. First of all, why is it necessary to properly discipline a child? And the Bible is clear on this. It has to do with the innate, inherent sinfulness of children. Children do not have to be taught to misbehave. Misbehavior comes naturally to children. In any given situation, a young child is inclined by virtue of 
the nature he or she brought with him into the world, the sinful nature that I referred to a moment ago, to do the wrong thing, not the right thing, to do the self-serving thing as opposed to the other-serving thing. The positive influence of significant adults who are committed to the goal of raising a person of character. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. God clearly says this is his first direct instruction to parents. Look, what I want you to do is train your child's character. I tell people all over America, I hope they're not too disappointed. God does not really care about your child's grades. He doesn't care if your child uh, gets a scholarship to Harvard becomes a doctor, a famous neurosurgeon, whatever that may be. All God cares about is your child's character. He makes that very, very clear in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, where he says, and I'm going to paraphrase slightly because I didn't anticipate that I was going to go here, so I don't have it in front of me. He says, NIV version, impress these commandments upon your children In the New King James and King James versions, it reads, teach these commandments diligently to your children. And then the paraphrase, at every possible opportunity as you walk down the road, as you prepare for bed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the positive influence of significant adults who are committed to the goal of raising a child of character is essential if a child is going to make and keep making the choice to behave properly in any given situation in a manner that is both respectful to others and respectful to God, our Creator. Here are some of the biblical uh, verses that support this idea. The Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. That's Proverbs 3.12. I'll read it again. The Lord disciplines those he loves. In other words, there is no contradiction between powerful, godly discipline of a child and the godly love of a child as well. As a father, the son he delights in. Here's another one. Those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. Notice it doesn't say care enough to spank them. It says care enough to discipline them. Now, this is a controversial thing, but let me go into this for a minute. The word rod is used in Scripture in two separate ways. In the first way, It is preceded by the article A. In the second, it is preceded by the article V. If you look at the use of the word rod across Scripture and apply the principle of biblical exegesis that Scripture interprets Scripture, it is clear that when the word rod is preceded by the article V, As opposed to the article A, it is being used metaphorically. It is not being used literally, as is the case when the word appears as a rod. Every single time the word rod is used in the context of the discipline of children, 
it is used with the metaphorical article the in front of it. Now, that does not eliminate the possibility of a spanking, but I keep saying to people all over the country, do you really think God wants us to spank our children every single time they misbehave? Do you understand how many spankings the young child would receive under those circumstances? So, those who spare the rod of discipline, what does the rod of discipline mean? It means godly discipline. It does not mean necessarily, although, as I said, it doesn't exclude it, a spanking. Those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. That's Proverbs 13, 24. In the 1970s, I was the first parenting pundit to assert that a family should be operated as a benevolent dictatorship. That's the term I gave it. It was my intention to convey that proper parenting was constituted of equal measures of powerful love and powerful leadership, unconditional love, unequivocal leadership. The Latin root of benevolent means for the good of, and the root of dictator is dictate. So you put those two together, and what you've got is benevolent dictator, a person who instructs with loving authority for the best interest of the child. I felt the term captured the essence of good parenting. Rather quickly, however, I discovered that many people, especially professionals who taught and worked with children, only heard dictatorship and were appalled as a consequence. The resulting knee-jerk reaction was usually accompanied with lots of shouting and general boorishness, as my mother would have called it. In my vain attempts to defend and explain myself, I came to realize that these same people thought love was enough to raise a functional child. No matter what word I might have used to reflect the need on the part of a child for authoritative leadership, these romantic, very liberal idealists would have suffered convulsions. It's all well and good for someone to say he loves someone else. It's all well and good for a person to say he loves his child. But that profession of love is meaningless without affirming action. In the case of parental love, proper discipline is one such affirmation. The Bible says that discipline is an expression of delight in one's child. The more parents delight, the more effectively they discipline. And the more effectively they discipline, the more they will delight. The Bible also says that parents who discipline their children properly are doing the Lord's work. It should go without saying that more gratifying employment cannot be found. Well, this has been another episode of Because I Said So on American Family Radio, this provocative and hopefully fascinating look at American parenting. The show is produced by the inimitable Rich Rosell, and uh, I'm John Roseman, psychologist, syndicated columnist, author, public speaker, and now radio talk show host. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us again next weekend at 5 o'clock Central Time right here. Why? Because I said so. From Creative Genius Productions and American Family Radio Network.